You're listening to the Derms and Conditions Podcast. So another year has gone by, another calendar year, 2023. And I have to tell you, during this year, I have really enjoyed doing the Derms and Conditions Podcasts. I hear a lot of positive comments from people. I get emails, I get texts, or I'll see people at meetings, and it means a lot when someone comes up and says, I really enjoy the podcasts. I occasionally hear some constructive criticism, which we all take to heart and try to implement, and I don't only want to hear the good, I want to hear the bad and the ugly from anyone, but this has really been a great ride and a great opportunity for me to talk to colleagues and bring you information. And the goal is to help you every day in your practice and help you learn more dermatology. I know I certainly do. And if I ever fall short of that, please let me know. So what I'm doing today and what we found a lot of people like last year is to do the Derms and Conditions podcast year in review. So I'll start by saying you can go to Derm Squared and you can specifically look on the Derm Squared website, and you can see all the podcasts from the very beginning. And they have a number, they have a title, they have the individual that that I interviewed, and you can go back and look at any one of those anytime if you want to, if you want to reach back. Just look through them when you have some free time and see if there's something that maybe you did listen to before, but it's been a while. And what I find is when I go back and listen to them, like like I did just recently to remind myself what were the high points from some of these podcasts, I find it's like a movie that I haven't seen in a long time. Maybe when it first came out, I saw it once or twice. And now it's a year or two later and I'm watching it. I'm seeing something that I never noticed before that, that I find very, very interesting. This will be the same when you have time to do it. So I would suggest you do that, and that's always available to you. Also, if you have any suggestions, email me. My email is jqdelrosso at yahoo.com, j-q-d-e-l-r-o-s-s-o at yahoo.com. That's my personal email, and you can just put in there podcast suggestion. If you have a suggestion, I'll be interested in certainly listening to it. I can't promise we'll get to all of them, but uh, I'll do the best I can. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pick some highlights from some of the podcasts from this past year. And I want to start with one that I did very recently with Dr. Shane Chapman. And Shane practices in New Hampshire. He's the professor and chair of dermatology at Dartmouth there. I've known him for a long time. He's had a very strong interest in skin cancer, a lot of dermatologic surgery, a lot of skin cancer surgery. So when he talks about utilizing therapies other than surgery, for skin cancer. We focus primarily on non-melanoma skin cancer, but there are some options primarily for melanoma in situ to consider. He's not speaking out against surgery, but he's talking about those situations where it may be important to look at non-surgical options. Some of the elderly patients that have a lot of comorbidities and have skin cancers that are in areas that are going to be difficult to heal, or maybe you're going to have problems with them in terms of their comorbidities surgically, medications they're on, etc. There are some potential options. And one of the areas we talked about 
are non-melanoma skin cancers. And sometimes this can even be in younger patients, not necessarily elderly patients or patients with comorbidities. But here we're talking about in locations, like on the lower legs. We see that a lot in women. A lot of the women have sun damage. They don't necessarily protect their legs when they're exposed to ultraviolet light or or sunlight. Uh, And they get a lot of skin cancers, a lot of sun damage on their legs. Many times they're older patients that have on the ankle area, the lower leg, where you're going to have difficulty with surgery where you're thinking about some non-surgical options. So the scenarios we talked about were squamous cell carcinoma, which is where he is considering often to use intralesional 5-fluorouracil. And I have done this in some of these situations. And for basal cell carcinoma, and here we're talking about nodular basal cell carcinoma. We're not talking about morpheiform or infiltrative of basal cell carcinomas that are not distinct in terms of their their margins visibly, but primarily nodular type basal cell carcinomas, where you might consider intralesional therapy. And for squamous cell, he tends to start with intralesional 5-fluorouracil for basal cell carcinoma with methotrexate. But sometimes you'll find that one is not as helpful as you thought, and you can switch to the other. So they can work for either type of skin cancer, but that's how he typically starts. And these are patients, like I said, not very good candidates. A lot of times these patients have multiple squamous cell carcinomas on the lower extremities. And here we're talking about well-differentiated, very often have a keratoacanthoma type appearance. And these are patients that are not organ transplant patients that are immunosuppressed significantly and at much higher risk for metastasis. Though any of these squamous cell carcinomas can metastasize. If it's someone that's not immunocompromised and has a well-differentiated squamous cell carcinoma, the risk of metastasis is lower. So how is this done? The intralesional therapy that's used with with 5-fluorouracil or methotrexate or with the standard vials, with the standard dosing with those vials, and you draw up in a syringe. And typically for any of these type of skin cancers, whether it's the squamous cell or the basal cell with either agent, you're utilizing up to 3 cc's, often lower than that. And you inject into the the body of the lesion where you feel the central portion of that lesion is going to be and inject to try to get down to the base. You just don't want to give a little superficial injection. And then a periphery, sort of a wall around the visible edge of the, this, the lesion that you're seeing. These are well-defined lesions visibly. And you do that and evaluate the response of the patient. They may have some breakdown of the lesion. They may have some discomfort, but typically it's something they can tolerate uh, fairly well. You don't necessarily anesthetize them before you inject it because that creates as much pain as the injections themselves, but they're no more painful than any other type of injection that an individual will get with a needle. And you see them back typically in about three weeks to four weeks, where you might repeat depending on the response that you're seeing. A lot of times you might need two to three treatments, sometimes up to five. If they don't respond in five, Dr. Chapman suggests that you would then 
switch to an alternative treatment. If you're looking at three injections and you're seeing nothing, then you certainly might want to consider going to an alternative route, maybe switching from 5-fluorouracil to methotrexate or going the other direction. Now, when you have a lot of actinic damage, actinic keratoses diffusely on the lower extremities, you might still want to treat that with appropriate therapy for actinic keratoses. Uh, photodynamic therapy is something that he finds very helpful in that situation. Obviously, you want to make sure you educate the patients that this is not a surgical technique. You're not going to be evaluating the lesion histologically after. You're going to be basing it on clinical judgment. Now, sometimes you have basal cell carcinomas, nodular basal cell carcinomas in areas where you have a younger person, but they really do not want to have surgery. So let's say you're talking to, it could be a male or a female, but they have it on their nose or on their face, and they're really against the idea of surgery. They need to understand that this may not be optimal as compared to doing a surgical procedure, let's say a most surgical procedure, where you're showing them the highest capability that you can completely get rid of this lesion. But it's a surgical procedure, and it's hard to predict what the outcome is going to be in terms of healing, even if you have yourself of someone very skilled in repairs, or you understand the dynamics of second intention healing and what you can expect in terms of the visible outcome or the cosmetic outcome. Regardless of what you're doing, they could still get a scar. But if the patient understands those risks and they're fully documented and that this may not be optimal in terms of clearing the lesion, but they have a good chance of clearing it, but not the same as the surgical procedure that you would do, then you can certainly use these therapies for a nodular basal cell carcinoma. And they have to subscribe up front to the fact that you want to see them regularly over time to make sure you're evaluating for recurrence, just like you would do with any procedure. So I thought those were very, very helpful suggestions that Dr. Chapman gave. And I would suggest listening to that podcast. He has a lot of pearls and things that are clinically relevant. The other suggestion is oral acetretin. And oral acetretin under the brand name of Soriatane, and I, I, I believe it's available generically, I know it's available generically, can be very helpful. We've used it in patients that are renal transplant patients that develop squamous cell carcinomas frequently. They're at higher risk of metastasis. They develop multiple lesions. And we want to shut down the the frequency that they're developing these squamous cell carcinomas or even stopping the growth or the progression of some of the current lesions. Oral acetretin can certainly do that. And there's a lot of literature on it being used in the transplant population. But it's also very effective in these other patients that we're talking about with squamous cell carcinoma, primarily for squamous cell carcinomas. These patients that have multiple lesions such as on the lower extremities, that are not immunocompromised. And even using a low dose, such as 10 milligrams a day or every other day, is very helpful in these patients. You don't necessarily have to use the 25 to 50 milligrams every day. And those patients, they may have some dryness. You may want to take a look at lipids, etc. but they tend not to have much when they're utilizing 10 milligrams every other day. And that's something that's open to you. Another uh, podcast that I found 
very elucidating was with the illustrious Dr. Adam Friedman, who is at George Washington School of Medicine in Washington, D.C. He's the chair of dermatology and runs the residency there. He has a breadth of knowledge and a breadth of interest, and he's always enjoyable. He's a fun guy, a very smart guy. And he talked about an area in dermatology that we know very little about. And he's been working with an initiative to try to get data on this particular area where we do have limited information. And that's the subject of sensitive skin as a standalone entity. So we're not talking about conditions like rosacea and others where patients have sensitive skin associated with that particular disease or atopic dermatitis or whatever the case may be. We're talking about patients that come in that do not have a primary skin disease, but they're telling you their skin is sensitive. And it's hard in dermatology for us to deal with things that we can't see. So this patient is telling you, my skin stings, it burns easily. When I use different things on my skin, I have burning, stinging, sensitivity. And it's very easy for clinicians, and I'm not criticizing, it's easy for this to happen, to think that that someone is eccentric or they have an underlying psychological issue, or it's something that you just don't know how to deal with because you can't quite figure it out. And you suggest a gentle cleanser, moisturizers, products that have on the label that they're for sensitive skin, but you're not really partaking in them sensing that you really have a lot of interest in taking care of them because maybe you do, but you just don't know exactly what to do. So he's had some observations based on some work that's in its early phases, and I tip my hat to them. What they have found in a global evaluation, and a lot of this is not necessarily perfectly done, like like a very detailed clinical study, but over 10,000 patients from around the world, they recognize that you can have 60, 70% of the patients telling you that they have sensitive skin. And a lot of times that's going to be associated with some other entity, but up to about 40% of individuals will tell you that they have those symptoms, but they don't have any known underlying entity. And it's not necessarily when they go out in the sun or when, you know, whatever the case may be, that could be an environmental issue where they don't have an underlying disease. But sensitive skin is more common than we may perceive. Now, when they ask these individuals, who do they go to see first, they'll typically go to a dermatologist, but they don't necessarily end up with the dermatologist. It depends how their situation is managed. So a few of the things that that he pointed out that I think were very valuable was that, first of all, when you listen to the patient and you recognize that, yes, this can certainly be an entity that stands alone, and you recognize that you're not just thinking, or maybe they could sense in your body language or how you look, that you're not necessarily thinking that this is something that you believe or understand or can help them with. Just the fact that you acknowledge that this is recognized as an entity is encouraging to that individual. But then, of course, you have to try to help them. What has been commonly recognized that he pointed out that I found interesting 
is a lot of these patients will tell you that they've already used products, cleansers or skincare products that it says for sensitive skin, and they still have the problem. And so that's important to know because we have to recognize that a lot of times those products that where it says for sensitive skin, they're avoiding common allergens or irritants that defined based on ingredients with patients and populations in general. But that doesn't mean it doesn't bother this sensitive skin population. This is a difficult group of patients to manage, but we need to recognize that this is an entity that's real. And if it's not something that we deal with, hopefully we have someone that is very open to handling these patients and we can get the patient's help. The other thing that I think was important was based on the color of skin, whether it was very light in the middle or very dark, there wasn't any difference noted, at least to date, and we certainly need more data, that the percentage of individuals in those different skin color groups was different in terms of the number of people affected. It didn't matter depending on the skin color, but it appeared that patients that had darker skin had a greater severity when they did report sensitive skin that was not associated with any underlying known disease state. I will caution that in patients that have darker skin, we may not recognize the underlying disease state. And they may have rosacea, but we can't see the erythema. So we have to factor that in the back of our mind. So that that was, I thought, because that's an area I am interested in. I like skincare, barrier, uh, you know, barrier products and things to help the skin barrier. But that is a standalone entity and hopefully we'll get more definitive information, but it's something we have to be open to and not be thinking, oh, this is just an eccentric patient that's off the bell curve that has a psychological problem. It may be in some cases, but in most cases, it's probably not going to be. Now let's talk about Dr. Matt Zyrus, who is a category in and of himself, anybody that knows him. Very bright guy, He takes care of contact dermatitis, patch testing, inflammatory skin disease, a lot of patients with eczematous dermatitis. So his patients are, whether they have atopic dermatitis or contact dermatitis, some form of chronic spongiotic dermatitis. Is it a variant of psoriasis? Might they have scabies? Might they be CTCL? So we had a two-part series where we talked about many of these areas, and I can't capsulize that for you. But I can tell you, I picked up a pearl in there that I did not know about that can be very helpful. I've had situations where we've had patients that have fallen under, oh, they're atopic, or they have something else that's going on, something eczematous. And it turns out that they've had scabies. And maybe they've been treated with scabies incomplete for scabies incompletely. Maybe they haven't. But a lot of times it's hard to make that definitive diagnosis and to find the mite, especially when they have a lot of secondary changes or even some eczematous changes that are overlying with that disease or a lot of excoriations. He talked about a test that you can get from a company called Vicar, and it's a 
polymerase chain reaction test, a PCR test, where you take six scrapings, and it's recommended that the dermatologists look for areas that they think might be high yield where a mite was, though you don't necessarily find a burrow per se, and you don't have to find the mite. You're trying to find areas where it's likely where a mite was. So you're not getting an eschar or a crusted over excoriation, but you know, you're, you're using your judgment to get six areas where you do a standard skin scraping with a little bit of vigor, but you don't have to cut deeply into their skin. And you're putting all those samples into a collection cup. And that's sent off to this laboratory. And they run PCR on everything that you've collected to see if there's any DNA that is specific for scabies. Right? And they report back within three to four days whether they find that or not. If they find it, then that's very helpful to you. You may be getting a diagnosis of scabies in someone that you would not have missed. And Matt has talked about some examples that he's had. And the patients were treated successfully for scabies. And they may have been patients that have been seeing other people or maybe himself. And that's something that's very helpful because it's an actual test you can do and not have to worry about. You can look for mites, but a lot of times you're not going to find them. Now, if the test is negative, it doesn't totally exclude it. But if you're reasonably selective in getting six areas, it's reported to have a 97% sensitivity. How accurate that is, we don't exactly know, but I thought this was very helpful. The other area that he did mention, something about Because we talked about older patients, patients that come in that are in their 50s, 60s, or 70s, where you're thinking about, do they have atopic dermatitis? They don't have a real strong history of when they were younger, or that you know definitely that there was a family history, or that you're thinking, wow, this is definitely an adult because this whole history of atopic dermatitis and and in themselves and their family is crystal clear, they're patients that you don't quite know, or they've had onset as adults. Now, yes, they can have atopic dermatitis, but it raises a red flag as to what else they might have. And we're always concerned about the possibility of cutaneous T-cell lymphoma, that classic mycosis fungoides type patient that evolves over time before the lymphoma becomes manifest. What he talked about that I thought was very interesting was if you miss that and you put the patient on dupilumab and it manifests over time that it's more apparent and you do biopsies and you do find out that they indeed have cutaneous T-cell lymphoma, his assessment of the patients that he's dealt with and all the literature is that the dupilumab did not cause that cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. And you may have biopsied it at a time earlier where you didn't find the cutaneous T-cell lymphoma or did enough biopsies to see it, but later on you did. So you shouldn't have trepidation about, oh, I put a patient on dupilumab and, oh my God, I missed the cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. You certainly want to be thoughtful about it and and do your biopsies and, and do the correct evaluations in those patients. But that's something that would 
we're not blaming on the drug per se. We don't really have evidence to say that the tupilumab caused the cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. Also, something he talks about in older patients is he finds success in these individuals. And even if you can't really define the source of the eczematous dermatitis and you don't have a contact or something that you're thinking about, low-dose methotrexate is something that's very helpful in those patients. Now, I'm going to end with the last one that I think the two-part series is brilliant, and it's with Dr. Jeff Donovan. And Dr. Jeff Donovan practices in Whistler, British Columbia, Canada. He did his dermatology training in University of Toronto. He went to medical school in Ottawa, University of Ottawa, and he practices in Canada. And I heard about him from seeing a presentation that happened to be a Viewmedi video that I was up early. And it was an hour and a half, and I'm, I didn't even know who he was, but I was up early. I was wide awake. I said, let me listen to this. I actually thought maybe it would put me back to sleep, and it was the opposite. It was very, very educational. So I had him do two podcasts. The part one focuses primarily on alopecia areata. The second part discusses some of the other areas, and we, we went you know, soup to nuts here with some of the things you have to think about. So a few of the things that he taught me, and then we'll end this this podcast, is that even though we have newer therapies now, we have new Janus kinase inhibitors, and one of them is actually a tech inhibitor and a Janus kinase 3 inhibitor. That's one of the agents. And then we have another agent that's been improved. That's a Janus kinase 1 inhibitor, both for severe alopecia areata. And they're both been shown to be very effective. We're collecting longer term data, but don't think we're ever done. We have new information to glean. We have newer therapies to look at. But even from these therapies, we have to get longer and longer data to see what's going to happen with these patients. So one of the things we did talk about is number one, I said to him, what about when you've missed alopecia areata? Have you, you see, he sees only hair. Those are the only patients he sees as a dermatologist. And he said, there are many, many mimickers, but an example he talked about, which he's seen on more than one occasion is if you have a child, a preschool or early school age child, that the parent tells you they've had this complete lack of hair. So in your mind, it's alopecia universalis, but they've had it since they were born. That's not alopecia areata. That's some type of genetic syndrome if they had it from birth. So keep that in mind. And he had some cases of that that have come up. The other thing he talks about, if they have patchy alopecia areata or something where you're not exactly sure, and they have intense symptoms like itching, burning, sense of pain and scaling. And I had one of these fairly recently that turned out to be lichen planopilaris, which I labeled as alopecia areata initially in the adult. Happened to be a judge. He was an attorney. He was a great guy. He really hung in there. Um, and we did a biopsy because he had these perifollicular erythematous areas. And that's one of the things that Jeff Donovan talked about. If they have these symptoms that are at a step with, especially if they're significant, they're intense with alopecia areata, 
it's very often going to be something else. And there may be scarring alopecia type processes, lymphocytic alopecias that we talk about where we don't see scarring yet. So think about the possibility of a biopsy. And then I asked them, when do you biopsy and how do you biopsy? Not only in these cases, but let's say in the case of alopecia areata, he said that he thinks it's okay to have a low threshold for biopsy. When you, if you feel a biopsy is needed for a patient, don't feel like it's heresy to be, be performing a biopsy because this should be a clinical diagnosis, but very often you're not going to need a biopsy. But if you do, it's typically going to be a four millimeter biopsy in one area. You may decide to get a second area, depending on the clinical presentation. And there was a lot of debate about what types of sections. He said the important thing is find the dermatopathologist where you send your specimens to that likes looking at hair biopsies. Because not everybody, even amongst dermatopathologists, likes that particular area or feels that they're as proficient as they would like to be. So you want that hair specialist dermatopathologist. Most of them are going to be fine with horizontal sections. If they like another method, then you would discuss that with them individually. And he likes to use his dermatoscope to direct to the area of biopsies. So if you see these areas with yellow dots around the lesion, or you see black dots, which are broken off hairs. Occasionally, you might see an exclamation point here. The dermatoscope might help you find that. You see focal perilesional erythema with scale. That may be an area you want to biopsy, but the dermatoscope will often help you. So I'll stop with this point. And remember, if you have a dermatoscope and you can capture the pictures for your chart, that is also going to help you substantiate why you did the biopsy. So I hope these were good tips, but I'd say go back and pick some of those old episodes. And if you could stand listening to Jim Dalrasso while he's talking to these other people, you're going to learn a lot from these individuals. So I hope you had a great 2023, a great holiday season. And looking forward to more in 2024. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Derms and Conditions. If you have any questions, please email us at podcast at dermsquared.com. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T at D-E-R-M-S-Q-U-A-R-E-D.com podcast at dermsquared.com.